We are preaching through the Gospel of Luke. We're in Luke chapter 3, finishing up our examination of John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. wanted to look at John the Baptist from the perspective of what the life of a prophet is all about. Life of a prophet. And we've talked about prophecy before, and that... Um, that gift in office is different in many ways than in the times of Jesus, uh, especially the speaking new scripture into existence. The scripture is closed now. Um, the predictive nature of prophecy, we would say, is closed with the end of the New Testament canon, but the role of the prophet is still to exhort and proclaim the word of God. And we're going to see today an important aspect of that exhortation is calling people to repentance. So we're going to look at the life of a prophet because I believe that whether or not you have the actual gift of prophecy, in some measure, we are all called to prophesy, to speak the word of God into our culture, into our homes, into our own hearts, to call our own hearts to repent and to call others to repent along with us. And so in that sense, we're all called to prophesy. We're all called to be prophets. Now, you don't need to move to the wilderness, although you're kind of here, um, and wear camel hair and eat locusts and wild honey. But I guarantee if you speak the word of God into this culture, you are going to look strange and different. You are going to look strange and different. You know we're living in a, a post-Christian society. seems to be changing ever more rapidly uh, with each passing day. But we're continued to live and preach and proclaim the Word of God. Proclaim it with our mouths and proclaim it with our lives. And so we'll look at four aspects of the life of a prophet We'll look at the message of the prophet and the method of the prophet. And then we will look at the role of the prophet and the reward of the prophet. So if I'm calling everyone in some measure to prophesy, then what's the reward? You know, what's in it for me? And you'll have to wait all the way to the end of the sermon for the reward. Let's start with the message of the prophet. And we we looked at Part of this last week, so there will be some overlap. People coming down to be baptized in the Jordan by John the Baptist. And it says, so he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. 
So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is a message of repentance. I hate to use the phrase turn or burn, um, but you're familiar with that phrase. And certainly we can make the mistake of becoming um, a judgment-only gospel. Imploring people to repent for the sake of escaping the wrath to come. And that is definitely a part of the gospel, an important part of the gospel. And maybe our culture needs more of that part of the message. But the rest of the message is come to Jesus. His burden is easy. His yoke is light. God is good and he's loving and he's gracious and he's merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He is both a God of wrath and a God of mercy. And both of those aspects are loving and the definition of love. But it appears and it is applied by the text that many were coming down to the waters not to be baptized because they were interested in repenting. Many were coming down to the waters to give an outward show of humility, only to return back to their wayward lives. And so he warns them not to be like a brood of vipers, not to be like a bunch of baby snakes escaping the brush fire by slithering down to the river, only to go slithering back to their vile lives after the flames die down. Definitely there is an allusion here to Satan who is depicted as a serpent in the Garden of Eden. And Jesus said, if, if your father isn't God in heaven, then you are a child of Satan. And so by using the term brood of vipers, he's saying, unless you repent Unless you receive God's forgiveness, your father is still the devil. And your behavior will, will demonstrate who your father really is. So don't come to the waters unless your heart has been humbled and you acknowledge your need for God's forgiveness and you are intent on making change in your life, changing the way you think changing the way you act, changing the way you treat others around you. Many were saying, well, we don't need to repent because we have Abraham as our father. We're, we're Jews. We're the chosen people. God is our father by birth. He chose Abraham to be the father of the nation Israel. And since Abraham is our father, then spiritually God is our father. That's how the logic went. But as Paul taught, not all Israel is Israel. And not all who call themselves Christians are truly Christian. Now it is not up to me to decide who is an authentic Christian and who isn't. It's up for me to examine myself that I be in the faith. 
And it's up to me to exhort or prophesy, in effect, that you need to examine yourself and see that you are in the faith. We get people all the time who don't question their salvation at all and maybe should. I I just don't see anything that looks like Christ there. We get other people who are working tirelessly to bear fruits of repentance and are constantly questioning their salvation. To, To those we often say, look, I don't know, but I do know this, people who aren't saved don't care about whether or not they're saved. That tends to be in the arena of those who who do care about what God thinks of them. However, often we'll see those people trying so hard to be good that it appears as if they have forgotten the gospel of grace. Have I done enough good today? Have have I produced enough fruits of repentance? And next thing you know, your sanctification has slipped back into your justification. And so to you, if that's you today, you need to hear a little math this morning. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Faith plus nothing equals salvation. You say, well, what about my works? Well, let me add something to the right side of the equation. And I'm an, I'm an algebra teacher, and you know you're not supposed to add anything to one side of the equation without doing the same thing to the other side of the equation. But I'm going to violate the little algebra principles here. So Jesus plus nothing equals salvation plus works. I am not going to add works to both sides of the equation. Yes, that would balance things out, and that would be fair, but who said God's fair? I'm glad he's not fair. I'm glad Jesus took the punishment on the cross that I deserved, that he didn't. That's not fair at all. That's called mercy. You don't want fairness. You want mercy. You want grace. So, don't let your good works creep into your justification. They belong on the other side of the equation. It is our right response to the grace of God poured out on the cross. But if you see no fruits of repentance in your life, then it would, it would be good to, to question, do I really know Christ? Have I really received Christ? Do I really see change in my life? These are things that we need to wrestle with. The prophet of God will always call people to repentance. The prophet of God will always call people to repentance. Think about Noah and Moses and Samuel and Elijah and Elisha and Jonah and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. All, all the prophets. It got them in a lot of trouble. Uh, mocking, persecution, people wanting them to, to keep their mouths shut. It also required of them that they live the life that they were preaching. It it was the false prophets that God said to ignore. Those who say peace, peace, when there is no peace.
And so John the Baptist says, don't put any confidence in your heritage. Don't put any confidence in the flesh. If, if that's the way it worked, then God could turn these stones into, into believers. And he says, indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Fire, always representing judgment in the Bible. I know in our modern culture, fire represents zeal. We might even sing, set me on fire, God. You don't want God to set you on fire. I, I double-checked all the references in, in the Bible to fire this week. I could not find one that talks about setting us on fire in order to have more zeal. That is a modern idiom that we have pulled into Christianity, but I'm afraid that then it obscures the fact that fire means judgment. Any tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Why is repentance so crucial? I know it's uncomfortable to preach repentance to your neighbor, to, to unsaved family members, to co-workers. I mean, I'm not asking you unless the Lord leads you to, to pull a full John the Baptist and just, you know, preach it. Get up in the middle of your office on your desk chair and and um, preach repentance. But the opposite extreme would not be honoring to God. You you never come to that place in the conversation. There's no good news of the gospel if if there's no bad news. Without the judgment, then what did Jesus save us from? Boredom. It's a steep price to pay because what used to amuse me doesn't amuse me anymore. And so we're not here to entertain. We're here to give hope, an eternal hope. Without repentance, there's no hope for any individual, any relationship, any group, any nation. If, if we don't recognize our need for repentance, then there's no transformation. There's no change. There's no considering another way. And beloved, we live in a culture now that is preaching the opposite of repentance. Whatever you want to believe, whoever you want to be, whatever you want to do. In fact, we'll subsidize and finance your dreams. And when it all comes crashing down because God isn't blessing it, we'll bring in more money to soften the blow. We, we, will, we will finance any type of life. And then when you make a mess out of it, we'll bail you out. And of course, God won't allow this to continue much longer. The whole system will implode. What are we, 20 trillion in debt now? Is that the last? The numbers are ridiculous. I can't even, I'm a math teacher. I can't fathom 20 trillion. I try to explain what, what that is to our students and once you get past a certain number of zeros, it, it becomes absurd. And all it ends up is people people stop listening. 
to the warnings because they become so absurd that why bother? So the, the prophet running around saying, repent for the end is near and Jesus is re- going to return, nobody, nobody listens. But God calls us to continue to preach this message. It's the only message we have. Don't change the message. Liberal churches change the message. They tickled the ears. They began preaching a gospel that wasn't a gospel and really was no different than what you can get from a Disney movie. When you wish upon a star, makes no difference who you are. Anything your heart desires will come true. And then reality hits you smack in the face. Or maybe it didn't. Maybe we're living in a country filled with no grown-ups. No mature Christians. We're certainly becoming the minority. We could fill this church, every seat, if we preach that message. We would become a megachurch. But then slowly people would drift away because why come every Sunday and hear what you already believe about yourself? If there's no call to repentance, why do I need to show up? I'll just keep living life the way I like to live it. Why waste a Sunday? Why put money in the plate? But we could also fill every seat in this room by preaching a message of legalism. We would just get a different crowd. But the legalists were popular in Jesus' day. If we told people, you don't really have to change as long as you keep this rule, this rule, and this rule. If we just pick the right rules that people don't mind keeping, we could fill every seat as well. But eventually, we would drive people away. Look, liberalism, people drift away because there's no reason to stay. Legalism drives people away because self-righteousness is oh so ugly. The first time you fail at keeping a rule, the condemnation that the community heaps on you will drive you away. And it's sad because God's kindness leads us to repentance. The kindness of the Lord leads us to repentance. Neither system calls for repentance. Well, liberalism calls for repentance of nobody except anyone who's actually calling for biblical repentance then they need to repent. Right? The, the gospel of tolerance, tolerance for everyone except for the one person who is intolerant of sin. That's the person who needs to repent. The gospel of legalism only requires people who aren't towing the legalist line to repent. The legalist never needs to repent. Folks, we're living in a country that 
is encouraging everyone to view themselves as the oppressed minority. And if you're being oppressed, then someone is the oppressor, and that's who needs to repent. And whether left of the political spectrum or right just depends on who you're following is. The message is, you're the victim. You don't need to repent. Someone else needs to repent. The biblical message is that repentance starts with me. It starts with you. And if we can't recognize that, then you have no business preaching repentance. Which is why I think the gospel of repentance ends up getting obscured. You have to be repentant yourself. You have to recognize your own need for repentance in order to truly preach the gospel with conviction and with grace simultaneously. The gospel of repentance ought to sound like this. I need to repent. You need to repent. We need to repent. Let's do this together. I'll help you. You help me. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The world is telling us that multiculturalism, and, and um, which says that all cultures are, are equal. Multiculturalism doesn't teach that all races are equal. We teach that. The Bible teaches that. We're all one race, one blood. Multiculturalism teaches that all, all cultures are equally valid. All ideas. And yet the multiculturalists don't actually believe that because you don't see any of them moving to these countries that oppress people. They like religious freedom. They like freedom of speech. People flee to America for those things. You don't see people in America fleeing to countries where there's no freedom. Repentance unifies. If we're all turning from away from God and turning to God, that is what unifies. The world says, no, 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 no. Just blind diversity unifies. Letting people believe whatever they want to believe, that's what will unify our country and unify our world. That is ridiculous. It's preposterous. It's illogical. It's irrational. But, oh, it sounds so good. If we all just let one another do what's right in your own eyes. How did that work out in the book of Judges? Not so well. Repentance unifies. Pride tears apart. Without repentance, then there's no sin. Now, we know there is sin. But if you're telling people they don't need to repent, then you're saying there's no sin. And if there's no sin, then there's no Savior. And if there's no Savior, there's no hope. It's probably my greatest fear for our country right now is sin is no longer sin. If there's no sin, then there's no hope. Of redemption. No, there's no reason to change. 
And it seems the only sin left in our culture that you can commit is to say, we need to change and repent. And so there's going to be great pressure put on all of us as Christians. You can sing your songs and you can worship and and you can have your potlucks. But don't preach the gospel. Don't preach repentance. Don't talk about sin. And it'll start with losing friends and then maybe losing jobs and then maybe losing freedoms. And eventually, historically, it means losing your life. But Jesus said, those who are willing to lose their life will find it. You can't be a follower of Christ without daily repentance. Jesus said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, pick up your cross daily, and follow me. It's a, it's a daily exercise, repentance. Don't you feel the struggle of Romans 7 in your heart? That there's something in you that wants to do the right thing, but there's something else in you that wants to do the very thing that you don't want to do? We have the power of the Holy Spirit to say no to our flesh. You heard Romans 6 read before or to start our worship service. We have died to sin. We are alive in Christ. This verse from Luke 13, this uh, uh, chapter 13, verse 4, is such a shocking statement. People have their ideas about who Jesus is and what he said. And unless you're going to the Bible and reading about the life of Christ and what he said and taught, you will create a Jesus in your mind that never existed. This, these are actual words our Lord said. Now, on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galilean whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. So people went to the temple to make their sacrifice to God. They were slaughtered while they're worshiping the true God, and their blood was mingled with the blood of the sacrifice. And The question is, how could God let that happen? How could God let that happen? I understand when he allows bad things to happen to people who don't love God, but what about the people who do love God? And Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Obviously, he's not saying that if you repent, death will never visit you. All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. No one escapes death, but he's saying that there's a second death, this perishing. And repentance is the only way to escape the second death. I know 
Somehow we feel better if we die peacefully in our sleep at the ripe old age of 98. But we're not guaranteed that kind of death. All we know is that our days are numbered. And the psalmist said, teach me, O Lord, to number my days. Make each day count. Make each moment count. Am I leading a life of repentance daily? This is what will give us the assurance that our hands, our life is in God's hands. And we need not fear tomorrow and what it may bring. We could say it is well with my soul under any circumstance when we're leading a daily life of repentance. Why should we repent? We should repent because God is sovereign and holy. He is worthy of our worship and obedience. He has warned humanity that refusal to repent will be met with judgment. You heard Jesus' words. Did you know Jesus taught more on hell than heaven? It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. If you don't have the blood of the Lamb covering your sins. And so a proper fear of the Lord and a proper understanding of how terrible our sin is in the face of a perfectly righteous, perfectly holy God. I get upset when people sin against me and I'm a sinner. I can't imagine how much more God is angered when His Creatures made in his image sin against him and one another. And so certainly we repent to escape his wrath. But that's not the only reason we repent. We also repent because God is a God of mercy and love. And why wouldn't we repent? Why wouldn't you turn from your own plans and your own ways that has led to nothing but disappointment and dissatisfaction And in many cases, devastation in your life. Why wouldn't you repent from that? Why wouldn't you turn to a son who would give his life for you? A son full of compassion. God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We need to repent for both the fear of punishment and the joy of Reward. God is both a God of wrath and a God of mercy. How does that work in the same being? Look at the cross where his wrath and his mercy collided. And so I say repent because God is worthy of your worship. And I say repent. Why wouldn't you? You have everything to gain and nothing to lose except wrath, disappointment, and dissatisfaction. The method of the prophet. Well, we see preaching as the primary method of the prophet, but not all are called to preach. But I said we're all called to prophesy in some part to make disciples of all nations, 
to come alongside others and help them grow in Christ. You have to get practical and help people see how this beautiful gospel works in everyday life. And we see some stayed after their baptism and asked John, what does this repentance look like? And you might be surprised at the very practical advice that he gives them. The implication, though, that it's rooted and grounded in the gospel. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. Be generous, have a heart of compassion. Be ready to share. Now, certainly we should be discerning. If we give away our second tunic and the guy sells it to buy drugs, we're probably not going to give him any more tunics. He needs a different kind of help. But we should offer that other kind of help as well. But folks, we're living in a time where we're the tax burden is getting heavier and heavier, and I want you to fight the temptation to say, I gave it the office. They've taken enough. I give to the government, they can distribute to the poor. Charity works so much better face-to-face, person-to-person. Certainly we can pool our resources and help in greater ways than we can help as individuals, but don't ever stop helping as an individual. We are completely spiritually bankrupt, and Christ gave us everything. Everything. Spiritually bankrupt, Christ gave us everything. God is generous, so we should be generous. Love your neighbor as ourselves is such a better way of helping our fellow man than coming up with policy after policy after policy, law after law after law. Imagine what kind of nation we would be if everyone as individuals was generous with their neighbor. It's what the church ought to be and be a compelling witness to the world. Look at how they love one another. Look at how they help one another in time of need. Look at their generosity. The law of love is far more effective than redistribution of wealth by force. And it'll start with loving people and not possessions. Learn to love people and not your possessions. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized. And they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Now the tax collectors were considered to be evil the dregs of society, the worst sinners, worse than prostitutes. Because they were collecting taxes for Rome and propping up a pagan, anti-God government. And yet, God does not say being a tax collector is a sin. Taxes are necessary. Jews paid a temple tax. Nothing sinful at all about collecting taxes or being a tax collector. I get like no amens on that one. 
Now, certainly, taxation can become oppressive and evil men and women can use the power of taxation to oppress and to coerce. And I'm sure we will see that in our lifetimes as the church, sadly, in our nation. I think we've already seen examples of the IRS leaning on religious 5013C groups. The power to tax is the power to punish, after all. You can't outspend the government. They're using other people's money. But in John's day, a tax collector would buy a tax franchise from Rome. So they would take a portion of of the city, know who's living there, know how much should be collected in taxes. And what you would do is you would buy up front with the, the money that Rome expects to be collected. So now you have an incentive to collect. You've got to collect enough to pay for the money you fronted and then extra to live off of. And there was no problem with collecting extra to live off of. But you could see where the temptation to collect way more than you need to would be in effect. And when the whole country hates you anyways, then you might as well get all you can get. And Rome gave the power to the tax collectors to employ thugs and use force to collect the taxes. Remember when Zacchaeus encountered Jesus and Jesus said salvation has come to this house today it was because he paid back I believe four times the amount that he overcollected but he never told him don't be a tax collector anymore so I know many of you work in, and you have positions of authority you have power that the rest of us don't have that have been delegated to you by the state So be careful to only do what those powers allow you to do. And don't use those powers to lord it over your neighbor. In fact, those who work for the state should have a servant mentality. I'm a public servant. Remember when we had public servants? Not public employees, they were public servants. We recognized as a culture that we need some people to do these jobs and we'll designate some to serve us in this way and there would be a mutual respect. And again, the church can model this because in in some ways there's all kinds of leadership in the church, whether it's elders, deacons, ministry leaders. We're saying we delegate authority to you because we realize all authority comes from God. And that everybody can't be in charge simultaneously. And yet none of us are in charge because we're any better than anyone else. And those who lead ought to serve. By laying down their life for others. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? We don't know if these are Roman soldiers or if they're Israeli soldiers or even temple 
soldiers, but certainly they're people in authority with the power of the sword. I think we have a few people at church today who might relate to this, whether you're a correctional officer, police, sheriff, serve in our military. And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. Boy, this fruits of repentance isn't really like above and beyond. John's not setting some unattainable standard. Do not take money from anyone by force. The word in the Greek, diaseo. Seo, to shake, dia, like diameter, to shake all the way across or to shake thoroughly. This is where we get the term shakedown. Don't shake down people. Don't use your authority to shake down people. But friend who is now a, a general in the Marine Corps, but years ago uh, helped lead the surge in Fallujah, and he's telling me stories of the police they were training there in Iraq, um, they would catch them taking bribes. And they said, you're going to break the trust of the people. And they said, that's the way we do it over here. It's the way we do it. If I don't do it, nobody will respect me. And, and I fear because our country seems to be heading in that direction, where it's becoming expected that if you're in the highest levels of government, that of course the rules don't apply to you. And once the rule of law is gone, then the only thing keeping people from sin is force. All three of these examples exhort those with power to be humble and loving to their neighbors. All three of these examples, somebody has the leverage. And folks, you're always going to find yourself in a position where you have the leverage. You have something that someone else needs or you're in charge, whether you're a parent or a ministry leader, or you have responsibilities at work that give you a certain level of authority. Christianity governs from the heart that daily repentance. It governs the heart from the inside out. Legalism, statism, fascism, communism forces compliance from the outside. We must lead the way as the church by modeling a life of repentance and humility. So we have the message of the prophet and the method of the prophet. You're going to be called to come alongside new Christians and show them how to walk the Christian walk in very practical ways. The role of the prophet. Now, while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to them, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. I'm just preparing the way for Messiah. I am not the Messiah. I don't come anywhere near the Messiah. In fact, I'm so far away from the Messiah that I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Reference to the servant who would wash feet. 
I'm not even worthy to wash his feet. And that was the lowest of the low. The, the lowest servant would wash feet. This is John who said when Jesus began baptizing and John's followers got jealous, he said, well, he must increase. I must decrease. He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. I baptize you with water, and the water is symbolic. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. The role of the prophet is to prepare hearts to receive and follow Jesus. We must be careful as Christians not to replace Jesus with ourselves. So tempting. Well, this is how you should live because this is what's worked for me. And look, I turned out pretty good. Or even this is the way I live out my Christianity. There's black and whites in the Bible and then there's wisdom. Make sure if you're teaching people wisdom, you point to where in the Bible you got that wisdom from. Don't become wise in your own eyes. The prophet proclaims the word of God. Paul says uh, in 2 Timothy 3.16, right? All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for what? For doctrine and reproof, for correction and training in righteousness so that the man of God will be thoroughly equipped, lacking nothing. All of our, our discipling has got to come from the Word of God. Otherwise, you're making a disciple of you. And look at John the Baptist, who Jesus called the greatest man who ever lived. That man says, I'm not even worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. What does baptize with fire mean? We understand that Jesus baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside of us, cleansing us from all unrighteousness and giving us the power to say no to sin and walk in newness of life. But some people think this, this verse is a reference to Pentecost in Acts 2 when there were little tongues of fire above their heads as they were prophesying in foreign languages. And it may, it may be referencing that. It may. It may. But every other reference to fire in the Bible, when we're not talking about cooking meat or something, is judgment or purification. Judgment or purification. I believe what he's saying is that one is coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit if you repent and place your faith in Christ or baptize you with fire, judgment, if you will not repent and place your faith in Jesus. And I believe that is the correct interpretation of this verse because the nearest reference to fire is throwing branches in the fire that don't bear fruit. That's not going to purify the branches. That is destruction. In fact, he goes on to say, his winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. 
you don't want to be baptized with fire. That's judgment. You want to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. By the way, an interesting side note, the word for unquenchable in Greek is asbestos. I thought I'd share that with you. So finally, then, what is the reward of the prophet? We saw the message of the prophet. We saw the method of the prophet. We see... I keep forgetting this R word. Help me out here. The role of the prophet. The prophet isn't to become God. The prophet is to speak God's words after God. The the prophet isn't the Messiah. The prophet points to Messiah. There's always this fine line as a, as a pastor or any leader that you don't become the key member of the church where the church rises and falls on you. Christ is the head of the church. That's why we have a plurality of eldership here, a plurality of leaders, why we have plurality of pastors And you need to be careful in your own evangelism and discipleship, especially in the home with your children, that somehow you don't become Jesus. You model Jesus. You point to Jesus. You teach about Jesus. And the best way you keep yourself in the proper role is to stay humble and model for people by confessing your sins and asking for forgiveness. saying things like, this is why we need Jesus. This is why the gospel is so precious to us. So what's the reward of the prophet? Well, let's see what John got for his faithfulness. So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. Shut that prophet up. He didn't mind so much when people were going down to the water to be baptized because it made a, a, a kinder, more docile um, society. But when John turned the finger of repentance and pointed it at Herod for offing his wife and marrying his brother's wife. He didn't like that so much. Everyone needs to repent. It doesn't matter what your social standing is. I'm saddened and disappointed, the same as you are, that these two leaders we're stuck voting for neither seem to think they need to repent. Oh, to to have a leader stand up and lead us all in repentance. The prophets have always faced persecution. True prophets have always faced persecution. Listen to Stephen's sermon. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? 
They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. They didn't even bother throwing him in prison. They just stoned him to death right there. Here's the apostles. After they preached repentance, they were flogged by the Sanhedrin. And they were flogged and they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. That's their reward, that I would be treated the way my Lord was treated. What could be a higher compliment? And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ, which implies they're preaching a gospel of repentance. Not all our prophets, not all are called to preach, but all Christians are called to be disciples and make disciples. That can't happen without living a daily life of repentance and preaching a gospel of repentance. Helping others to turn from error and wickedness and turn to Christ. We will all experience some form of rejection or persecution for speaking truth in love. If you've never been rejected for speaking truth in love, then you haven't spoken truth in love. God will surround you with plenty of friends. You don't need everybody to like you. Now, don't heap up enemies because you're a jerk. That's, Jesus said, being persecuted for your own wickedness doesn't credit anything to your account. But if we preach repentance, if we live repentance, it's going to cost us something. It cost John his head eventually. Right now it may cost you a seat at the Thanksgiving table. Maybe you don't get invited to the best parties because you're the killjoy. Maybe it might cost you your job one day. It may cost you your tax-exempt status. Maybe it'll cost us our, our freedom one day. And maybe even eventually your life. But Jesus said those who lose their life for his sake will find it. We're not being called to lose our lives literally at this point, but we're being called to lose that former life of doing things our own way and never needing to repent. To turn from that, turn to Christ, walk in His ways, receive His forgiveness, and help others to do the same. And trust God for whatever the world's response will be. Because it's far more important what God thinks of you than what the world thinks of you. Fear not man who can only kill the body. Fear the one who can destroy body and soul. Father God, we come before you as repentant people who, by your grace, have acknowledged our need to turn from sin and turn from selfishness and turn from our pride and turn towards you in Christ and the forgiveness to be found in Christ. 
and to turn towards your perfect word, which will never fade, which will never fall away, which will never let us down. Lord, this nation needs repentance. May it start in my heart, in each individual heart, in your church, and spread from house to house, state to state. Bring revival to our nation. Bring revival to our individual hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.